You are listening to The Interpreter, the podcast of the Eastern Sierra Interpretive Association. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Lauren Delaney Miller. In this episode, I'll be sitting down with Joe Reedhead, author of Half Dome, The History of a Mountain, to talk about the most famous chunk of rock in the Sierra Nevada. Joe's background as a Yosemite wilderness ranger and as the founder of his own publishing company make for a really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. All right. Hi, Joe. Thanks for being here today. Thanks, Lauren. Great to be here with you. So I'd like to begin with a bit of your background and how you ended up in the Eastern Sierra. Uh, You're not from California, are you? No, I'm not. I'm from rural Missouri, um, from a small winemaking and farming community along the Missouri River called Augusta. But I started mid-20s, I started coming out to the Sierra Nevada, and particularly to Yosemite, to climb and for big walls. And I'd come out for a month at a time. And finally, after, you know, I'd I'd get back to Missouri and start dreaming about the next trip back to, to Yosemite Valley or to the high Sierra. And eventually I said, well, what's keeping me in Missouri anymore? And so I packed up my car and moved out west. And at the time, the uh, Tioga Pass was closed because it was winter. And I didn't realize that closed in the winter. And there's this town of Bishop was the first town I ran into. And uh, yeah, I've been hanging out here ever since. Awesome. And you worked in Yosemite for a while. Isn't that right? I did. Yeah, I worked seasonally there as a wilderness park ranger. I did four seasons, got to hike most of the trails in the park, uh, issued a lot of wilderness permits as well. And is issuing those permits what led you to write your book? Yeah, kind of. Uh, you know, when when I was just a, a climber visiting Yosemite, and I remember, you know, the first time you drive into the valley, you've never seen it before. I hadn't even seen that many pictures of it. I didn't really bother to Google Yosemite before coming to visit. And it's just so awe-inspiring, right? You hear about people being like, oh, I was brought to tears the second I saw that view. And and that was certainly me the, the first few times I came in. And then working and living there, though, you, you know, you kind of get a little calloused to, to really all that beauty that's, that's around you. And working frontline as a ranger, issuing permits to people, going hiking, talking to people who are going climbing even. Um, a lot of people who are going up Half Dome, whether they're hiking it or climbing it, they come into the Wilderness Center in Yosemite Valley first. And I got to interact with a lot of those people, hear their stories, hear where they were coming from, hear what was inspiring them. And for me, it was like the longer I, I kind of worked kind of on that frontline position, I became, yeah, a little hardened towards Half Dome. I, you know, I looked at it as a merry-go-round, as, a, as an amusement park ride, and stopped really seeing it through kind of the views of a newcomer or someone who doesn't come to Yosemite very often. And I, after a couple of years, I kind of acknowledged this and was like, that's a problem. That's, that's not a good thing to be looking at it in this way. And so I began to ask, all right, like, you know, if I want to get back to why I was inspired to, to come here, why these other people are inspired to come here, why are people, some people are quite obsessed with half dome for lack of a better word. I'm really fixated on getting up that summit or even just seeing it or getting near it and asking why. And that led me to ask, well, what is, what is half dome? 
you know, like if, if it had a story, what's its story? Well, let's dive in on a little bit more about Half Dome then. Like you said, this must be one of the most iconic pieces of rock anywhere in the world. Um, how did it get its famous shape? Yeah, lots of millions and millions, tens of millions of years of geology. Well, I guess maybe even hundreds of millions, depending on how far back you go. The Sierra Nevada itself, I, and I'm I'm no geologist, but based on what I've I've read and and discerned and kind of consolidated, uh, the Sierra Nevada really kind of started to form 400 million years ago or so as a plate, as, as a tectonic plate was subducting, going under what is now the Pacific Ocean, and and then getting lifted up. And those were sedimentary rocks at the time. And those rocks you can still find, particularly in the Eastern Sierra. Um, you can find them kind of like in the Mount Dana area of Yosemite. You can find them in the northern part of Yosemite as well, up near, say, like Kamiaka Peak and areas like that. And that was kind of the initial uprising of that area. Half Dome, of course, even, you know, the, the molecules that Half Dome weren't even on the scene yet. Half Dome itself came through a, a second generation of uplift and volcanic activity that was happening. So you have this ancient Sierra Nevada, which is all this rock that is like the 400 million year old stuff. And then you have the more modern era of the, the Sierra Nevada that we know now. And there's a lot of volcanic activity associated with that. And that all, all along the whole range, the length of the range running north to south, you had all of these hot spots under there pushing magma up, bubbling up, very much like a lava lamp, if you imagine what that looks like, right? And it's a really fascinating thing about it all is it's all connected under there, right? It's called the Sierra Nevada Bathowit. So being rock climbers or people in Yosemite, a lot of us are familiar with the word monolith, such as Half Dome or El Capitan, which is a single big chunk of granite, particularly a pluton, which is one of these little bubbles of magma that came up and hardened. But then under that, connecting all of these monoliths is the Sierra Nevada Bathowit. And all of that goes back roughly about 80 million years. So Half Dome itself, the rock is about 80 million years old. And when it formed, it all formed underground. So what we see today was, was buried. And then, thanks to first, initially erosion did a lot of the work. and really etched out the rough shape of the valleys, but they were V-shaped valleys. Erosion creates these nice V-shaped valleys. And so, say that the sheer face of Half Dome, that really wasn't there. It was starting to be there, but it really wasn't. So erosion created those valleys, and after that, we had a, a cycle of ice ages, and the glaciers coming through gave Yosemite Valley its U-shape, and they also... If you can imagine, they, they kind of mined out the, the base of Half Dome as well and carried away a lot of material, which aided in creating that sheer face. Before then, you know, and this is, you know, how much of this we can know accurately is a, a good question. But before then, you could imagine that, you know, instead of that sheer face of Half Dome being there, it was kind of more just a series of, of steep ledges and steep ledges that were 
were made up of weak layers of rock. Half Dome is kind of like a big onion, just peeling. And there's all these layers in there. And the reason it's peeling is because there's so much pressure inside of it. And it's still even releasing that pressure today. A lot of that pressure built up as it was cooling. It released a whole lot then. And there would have been a lot of wasting, so a lot of rock falling off earlier than, say, there is now. Um, but it's still got a lot of energy in there. And, and by energy, I mean just compact molecules that are pushing out. And that helps in, in creating those nice flakes that we see on Hapdom, whether you go up the cables or whether you're on the northwest face. Uh, those are the areas where you'll see them the most. So that really is, uh, hopefully that kind of helps give you a picture of how it was shaped. So it's a combination of erosion, of glaciation, but also just of kind of the natural makeup of the rock itself. That's a great description. And, you know, I think that when a lot of us think about Half Dome, we think of this big rock, right? Not a lot of life. But you write about the really unique ecology. What kinds of living things make their home on Half Dome? Well, I might as well just start with, with one of my favorite, probably my favorite living thing on Half Dome, which is the Lyle salamander. And these salamanders are, are really amazing. They Nobody even knew they existed until one was accidentally caught in a mouse trap near the Mount Lyle Glacier, which is why it's called the Lyle Salamander. Its closest relative, curiously enough, is in the Italian Dolomites, which I find fascinating. I don't know what the connection there is or, or why they're related, but just a little interesting factoid. But the Lyle Salamanders, they all live above a certain elevation. So the ones on top of Half Dome, they've been stuck up there since the last glaciation. So that's, you know, just a little bit lower than there. They don't live below. So they aren't traveling up and down half them. They're up there. So it's a really small population. And, you know, so a lot of people hike up and down half them. There's a lot of impact. And despite that, these little guys are still thriving up there. Well, thriving may be the wrong word, but <laughs> they're doing pretty well. And they're, they're really amazing little creatures. You can actually find videos of them on YouTube. So when the Lyle salamander is threatened, what they do is they, the way they flee the scene is they curl up in a ball and kind of like a snowball, just roll away. And as they're rolling, they'll pop out of their ball and do a weird jump, hop back into their ball and keep rolling and cruising along and flee from things. They can also excrete some kind of nasty smells and toxins that other creatures don't like as well. But they they live under under the rocks up on the summit. They find the cool places, particularly places where there's still a little bit of moisture left over from the winter snows. And they'll just stay in there to stay cool, come out and hunt bugs and whatnot, eat some plants when it cools down. And that's why it you know, when people are building cairns on top of Half Dome, it's like, well, you know, you are actually picking up someone else's home. And whose home is that? Well, it's, it's the Lyle Salamander's home. There's not that many of them up there, and they're kind of dependent on it, you know. So we do need to share this space with these little creatures. So they've been living on top of Sierra Summits. They live on top of summits throughout the Sierra Nevada for almost 30,000 years. That's a long time. 
So a lot of the times when we hear about halftone today, it's usually centered around human accomplishments. But before people even really started climbing on Half Dome, Yosemite's indigenous community had a pretty special connection to the mountain. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I can. Half Dome featured significantly in the Awanichi creation stories. And the Awanichi were the group of Native Americans who last resided in Yosemite Valley. They had come over fairly recently in time. And and before them, though, Native Americans had inhabited in Yosemite and the Yosemite Valley area for anywhere from 7,000 to 10,000 years. And permanently for, for maybe the last 3,000 years before then, it would have been more seasonal habitation. And it would have been different. Different groups would have come in and out, in particular, the southern Sierra Miwok. Um, who are closely related to the Awanichi, they would have been there a lot, perhaps the most, as well as folks from the the Mono tribe, which is over in the Mono Lake area, and and the Paiutes of the Eastern Sierra. So a lot of people would have spent time there from different groups, um, kind of ebbing and flowing with time. And there would have been there would have been a lot of stories. And one of the last creation stories we have though from the Awanichi is is the story of Tissac, which is how they knew the mountain. The mountain was Tissac, which roughly translates uh, as woman's whose face was stained with tears. And you can see those tears even today. They are the the rock lichen that, that grow on the face of half them. And so as it's told, this story took place long before the Awanichi came to live in the valley. A woman and her husband left the river plains of the Central Valley to visit their relatives across the high mountains to the east. It would have been a long journey, and it would have been a hot journey. The woman's name was Tissaak, and the man was Nangas. The trip was tiring as they slogged up those hot foothills of the west side that we all know. Uh, that are quite fire-prone and drought-prone today. And they, when they arrived in Yosemite Valley, they, they would have been quite exhausted and thirsty. And at the head of the valley, there's a broad section of river known as Awia. And today, on just kind of to the uphill, upriver, lookers left of Half Dome, there's a point called Awia Point. And there at Awia was a a bend in the river where the river slowed down. It was wide. Today we know it is near Lake. And so Tissac stopped there, quite thirsty. And she had her baby, placed her baby in her basket, set the baby down, and began to drink from the lake. And she was so, so thirsty that she filled her cup again and again and again and just kept drinking water. No amount of water could quench her thirst. Such that when Nangus arrived a short time later to drink from the lake, not a drop remained. And Nangus became consumed by anger. He rushed to his wife and, and he started to beat her. And Tissac tried to flee from his onslaught, but she couldn't escape his blows and tears filled her eyes. And finally, in great pain, she faced her husband and threw her basket that she was carrying at him and, and started to fight back. And this violence between the two of them, well, it angered the great spirit. 
and Nangas and Tissac had disturbed the peace of this quiet valley. And in retaliation, the great spirit turned them to stone. And their abandoned baby became what we know today as Royal Arches, which stands above today's Awani Hotel. And Nangas became Washington Column and North Dome, which are just a little further upriver from Royal Arches. The basket became Basket Dome. And Tissac, of course, became Half Dome. And again, those dark tears running down her northwest face that we see from the valley, those are her tears of pain. And, you know, I always encourage people to go in. In Yosemite Valley today, there's the Indian Museum, and you can go there, and there are some Park Service interpreters who are Native American and can tell these stories and can tell them, frankly, better than I can, um, and certainly with more meaning for these are their people. And so I would encourage people who go to the Valley for any reason to spend a little time at the museum there. Great. Thank you for that. What a special story. Um, and so today, it seems like many people are interested, like you were saying, in climbing Half Dome via the Cables route, uh, which goes up not the northwest face, but the rounded backside of Half Dome. Can you tell us about how those cables got there? Sure. Um, you know, they, the cables came long after the first ascent. And though they were somewhat in, in similar style to the first ascent, which was a man named George Anderson, he basically aid climbed what we know as aid climbing up the roughly where the cables route is today, drilling out holes, placing bolts, tying ropes to those bolts. And he fixed those ropes there in place. And then people after him for several decades would use those ropes to pull themselves up. Of course, the ropes got replaced over time because they would get tattered or torn off in storms. And eventually, though, this was, you know, it was still a dangerous proposition. Like I said, the ropes would get destroyed, sun bleached, and pretty regularly have to be replaced. And the person who had to replace them had to be a pretty bold person. This was, you know, rock climbing wasn't really... A, uh, an activity, a popular activity in, in America at that time. And so in, in 1919, well, he started prior to that, but in 1919, a, a businessman named Matthew McAllister, he, he loved the outdoors. He was a businessman down in San Francisco and was also an active member of the Sierra Club. And he thought to himself, he's like, well, I really want to inspire future generations to love this place the way I love it. He absolutely loved Yosemite and wanted to care for it in that, you know, he was a, a member of the early conservationist movement. And so not only was looking at how do we take care of and protect these places today, but how do we make sure that future generations take ownership of these places? And the way we get them to take ownership of these places and stakeholdership is by creating a bond with them. And one really cool way to do that, he thought, is to get them to the top of one of the, the loftiest and, as they like to say back there, most sublime summits. And so he came up with this great idea and he was like, all right, we're going to put in a system of cables, permanent cables, that will run from the top of the subdome also known as the camels back back then, 
all the way to the summit. He hired an engineering firm to design how these cables would not only get attached to the rock, but the frequency at which you would have to have the stanchions, the posts that would hold the cables up. And he organized all of the work and the money. So he bought all of the materials for it, paid for that. And in turn, though, required the Park Service to contribute in-kind labor. So all the trail labor needed to not only get the materials up there, but also to construct the cables as well. And so they started that in the spring of 1919 and slowly worked their way up and placing the exact same cable system that we have today, which is a set of two cables, which hikers go up between them. And then the cables are held up off of the actual granite via metal stanchions or metal posts that are placed into holes that have been drilled in the granite. And in the original design, they knew that avalanches were an issue and that the cables would need to be lowered at the end of each hiking season because otherwise avalanches of ice would in no time destroy those and rip them free. So the metal stanchions that hold the cables up so that hikers can grab onto them, those just pop right out of the granite. So they kind of loosely rest in there and then can be carried down and stashed in the woods for when they need to put them back up in the spring. And so if people want to climb those cables today, what does that process look like? Well, today the cables are, of course, quite popular. Uh, Not that long ago, you wouldn't need a permit or anything. You just show up and hike up there. But nowadays, uh, with the growth in people going not only into the parks, but also, you know, more and more people are venturing into the mountains. And so now there is a permit system in place and people need to get a permit. And the way that system works is you can put in uh, in advance in the winter, you can put in for a lottery system to get a permit to hike up. And you go onto the National Parks website to do that. But then they also set aside a handful of permits as well for a last-minute lottery. So for people who show up in the valley and then say, oh, maybe I want to go up half dome. Well, two days in advance, they can apply to that same daily lottery and put in for a chance to get a permit. People can also go up half dome as as a backpacking trip as well. And that's a different permit. You go through Yosemite's Wilderness Permit Office to get that one. And for the people who, it's a big hike, and it's a big hike to do in a day. Most people do it that way. But for people who don't want to go at that pace, or maybe want to incorporate Half Dome into a a bigger backpacking trip, they can do that, and there's ways to do that. Awesome. So that's the backside of Half Dome. What we know is the backside of Half Dome, the rounded side. I want to talk a little bit about the steep side, the northwest face, uh, because I know that there's a long history of climbing on that side as well. Of course, a little bit later than people started climbing on the backside. Yeah, there is. So the the steep side of Half Dome is called the northwest face, and it's it's 2,000 feet tall, the actual face. And then you have to remember that it, that is then also several thousand feet above the valley floor. 
and it's the face is slightly less than vertical, uh, roughly maybe 85 degrees or so. Rock climbers, they they began coming into Yosemite Valley. Of course, there are people like George Anderson who were kind of just more scrambling around well back into the 1800s. Of course, Native Americans would have been scrambling all over the rocks. But rock climbers in the modern sense that we understand rock climbers with ropes and things like that, they kind of showed up a little bit before World War II and started to explore some of the the towers and spires that are in Yosemite Valley, but they really weren't looking to the big faces to Hapdom or El Capitan. Those were just impossible walls. Even to conceptualize getting up it would have been a big deal. But as the as the war came to a close, uh, World War II, that is, more people began getting back into climbing. And one of the things that allowed that, interestingly enough, was that during World War II, um, you know, there were groups like the 10th Mountain Division in the U.S. There were other military groups like that in Europe as well. So all of a sudden there was this kind of larger scale production of mountaineering equipment, particularly ropes and pitons, which were critical to getting up Yosemite's walls and particularly its steeper walls. And several climbers in those early years began kind of questing up different routes, seeing what was possible. They didn't immediately go to the northwest face on Half Dome. Um, actually, one of the critical routes for, for testing modern rock climbing techniques, belaying, pitons, was just around the corner. So to lookers right, if you're on Glacier Point, looking at the southwest shoulder of Half Dome, there's a, a route that went up there that a early Yosemite climber, John Salafe, that he put up in 1946. They basically did the, the proof of concept of big wall climbing in Yosemite. And, and this was again on that southwest face which is where it's kind of right near where Snake Dyke goes up today, which is the easiest technical rock climb on Half Dome. And they did the first overnight bivy on a wall there. They also tested a new style of piton that Salafe was making. And that kind of opened up the door to people looking at these steeper walls and saying, okay, maybe we can do that. So around the same time, people started looking to the Northwest face and there's kind of some debate about how long people had been going up to it, maybe doing a pitch here, a pitch there seeing, you know, okay, can we get up a little bit? Are there some cracks here? Is there a system we can follow? That would have been in 1945 that climbers began to, to really go up there and, and seriously look at it. But it would have taken almost a, a decade longer before the first exploration really happened. So 1954. And they got a, a few pitches up. But again, it was just so... Imagine how intimidating that is, right? No one's done it before. No one knows if it goes. No one's even thought about climbing something this steep. Even in, in Europe and in the Alps. 
Sure, they were doing big things, steep things, but nothing like this, nothing like a sheer vertical face. And then in 55, that's when we have the first most well-known attempt to get up the route. And that's where we have particularly two of our, our legends in Yosemite climbing really come onto the scene, and those are Royal Robbins and Warren Harding. And they teamed up with two other fellows, Jerry Gawas and Don Wilson. And, I mean, they were young guys. Robbins was 19 years old. Harding would have been older. He was 31. And, you know, they, they started going up and got quite a ways up. Let's see. They got 500 feet up the face. Remarkable, especially for the time. I mean, we have to remember they're using uh, basically like military surplus ropes, you know, to get up this stuff. They're climbing in boots. They don't have, uh, you know, climbers today. They have camming devices. They have dynamic ropes. They have all this stuff. They have the knowledge that people before them, they did it. They basically have a map that shows them how to get up the thing. They can watch videos on how to do this stuff. These folks didn't have that. Something really interesting though happened on this climb. And that was that it was the start of, you know, in Yosemite, there's, it gets over dramatized the pit, but the the conflict of personalities between Warren Harding and Royal Robbins. And this is where we kind of first start to see that take place and where we begin to say, ah, okay, this is where the birth of this kind of friendly rivalry comes from. And that was in style. Harding was more of a traditional aid climber willing to do whatever it took to get up the rock. If that meant placing a bolt, then he would do it. Whereas Robbins was a bit more of a purist and wanted to, to limit how much he had to alter the rock to get up it. And so these guys tried it together, but failed and said, okay, well, we'll come back in another year, give it another attempt. Well, a couple years pass and Harding is, he's, he works as a surveyor and had to leave, go work in Alaska uh, for the summer. And But the whole time is writing to friends saying, hey, we need to do another attempt to get up this. Meanwhile, though, uh, Robbins is also contemplating another attempt. And Robbins and his team get word that Harding's going to be back in town in a couple of weeks and that he's going to go straight to the face of Half Dome. And Robbins and his, his team say, well, no, we can't let that happen. So they beat him to the valley. Harding doesn't know this, but when he gets to the valley, he looks up at Half Dome, and there they are. They're on the face. He knows they're going to get up it. And sure enough, they do. So yeah, they get up the face. It takes them five long days to get up it. And when they when they top out onto the summit of Half Dome, who's there to greet them? Well, it's, it's Warren Harding with, you know, a bag full of sandwiches and drinks and, you know, congratulations which i think is just a beautiful little scene so it does you know there's a movie out i forget what it's called it's about the valley though and it it over dramatizes this rivalry makes it out into this like you know just hate-filled thing but realistically no you know i mean sure maybe they didn't really climb together after this but you know they were still 
friends, still civil to each other, you know, still supported each other in their efforts. Um, and I think that's a really good thing to remember these days. Awesome. Well, Joe, it seems like Half Dome is a great place for adventures of all kinds. And this has been such a fascinating conversation. I just want to thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. Thank you, Lauren. And thank you to the Eastern Sierra Interpretive Association. A giant thanks to Joe Reedhead for being here today. You can find his book, Half Dome, The History of a Mountain, at his website, reedheadpublishers.com, or at our bookstore locations in Mammoth Lakes and Lundpine. This podcast is a production of the Eastern Sierra Interpretive Association, partnering with the Forest Service to protect the Sierra Nevada for over 50 years. To learn more about our organization and to support programs like this podcast through annual memberships, visit sierraforever.org. Until next time, I'm Lauren Delaney Miller. Thank you.